This week's episode is dedicated to legendary horseman Jimmy Wofford. Jimmy Wofford was a rider, coach, mentor, and friend to so many people and impacted the sport of eventing in ways that are unprecedented. We miss you so much, Jimmy. Welcome to episode six of OTTB on tap. I'm Neve, and I'm Emily. Today we're going to continue our interview with Emily Kokobinski and talk about her adventures with her OTTB Alexander. His jockey club name is Smoky Fire. For any of you pedigree enthusiasts out there, if you are listening to our podcast for the very first time, you might want to catch up on Emily's backstory a little bit which is episode four. So you can just go back and listen and find out how Emily acquired Alex in the first place. We're going to be calling this episode eventing long format, why you wanted to be sitting on an OTTB. I'm specifically interested in learning more about the old format days of eventing, which was going on while you were competing at the upper, upper levels, right, Emily? Yes. And to be honest, I mean, that's all we knew. Eventing really looked a lot different back then in the early 90s and into the early 2000s. For example, currently, for those that maybe are not as familiar with eventing, if you go to a one-day event or one-day horse trial, or even up through the levels, typically the phases are dressage, then you go to show jumping, And from show jumping, you go right out onto cross country. So there's no like untacking of your horse or rewarming up or anything like that. It saves quite a bit of time. But back then, even one day horse trials followed the traditional long format format, which was dressage first, then cross country, and then show jumping. So the phases were very distinct and separate. You would, you know, untack, cool off your horse after cross country and usually have a couple hours before you would then get them ready and go on to show jumping. So even if it was the same day, they were not like continuous phases the way that the jumping phases are now. And it really wasn't until the CIC format came out that the order started to shift to cross country last. And I think that was to make it more exciting for spectators to watch cross country in reverse order of standing. The reason that it was done that way was because it was mimicking what the cavalry used as a benchmark for their horses in terms of fitness and discipline and submission and all of that. And so that's kind of where that order comes from, I believe. Yeah. And even when you were just doing a horse trial to qualify for a longer format three-day event, they followed that order. So I think it's really interesting now that almost every event follows dressage and show jumping and right onto cross country, except for the major three days. So I think it's very interesting to watch a big three day like Burley or Kentucky, since these horses typically are done after cross country, not being brought out the next day to jog and show jump. Right. There's a section here where it says insert witty commentary. Perfect. (laughs) Yeah. And also they do a second presentation now as well, right? Did you do a second jog during your long three days? Okay. Yeah, yeah. There were actually three jogs. So there was the first one like there is today. 
the day before dressage. And then you would also have to jog your horse on cross country day in the vet box after the first three phases and before you went out onto cross country. And then there was a third jog the morning of show jumping. Interesting. Okay, cool. Well, let's talk about some of the big long format three days that you did. I'm really excited to hear about the kind of prep work and um, training that you did beforehand. Yeah, sure. The first long format three day I did was the North American Young Riders Championship in 1997. Not to age myself, but I was 17. (laughs) And my off track thoroughbred Alex, he was six years old. He'd been off the track about mm, a year and a half. I, you know, I guess kind of a go big or go home situation in my, <laughs> yeah, my younger years. And how did you qualify for your first long format three day? Sure. And I should clarify, we did the one star there. So the levels kind of changed a little bit more recently. So the one star level at that time was equivalent to the two star level today. So it was basically preliminary, give or take. And there really were no lower level for a three day at that time. That was the first time you experienced all these phases and it was basically at the preliminary level. To qualify for a one star at the time, you basically had to complete four prelims with no cross country jump penalties. Time penalties were allowed. And for those of us with one horse, we tended to not always go for time at every horse trial. I in particular knew I had the finances and budget barely for one horse, not to have a backup. And I was really saving his legs for the big three days. And we were pretty sure he'd go advanced. So I didn't want to risk breaking him at the lower levels. Yeah, for sure. And then for this specific three day, which was the North American Young Rider Championships or NAYRC, you had to apply with your USEA area and be selected. So I was by far the least experienced on the team. And I was actually the alternate until just before training camp when I got called up. I think it was like the week before or maybe two weeks before at Tops that I found out that, yeah, I think it might have been the week before that the top horse or one of the better horses on the team, I think, I think it had like an abscess or something like that and wasn't able to go. So they're like, all right, hope you're ready. But I had still done all the fitness work up until that point which of course is a slight risk if we didn't get selected for the event. Right. And then you had to go do training camp, correct? Yeah. So we got to attend a one week training camp at Jimmy Wofford's farm in Virginia, which I mean, it was just unreal. Like (laughs) stuff that dreams are made of to be able to go there for a week and keep your horse at the farm, train with Jimmy was just incredible. I just want to throw in a little Jimmy Wofford quote here that I think really pertains to what we're about to talk about. He it's in relationship to the long format. And he said, quote, your horse enters into the competition, firmly believing in you and that you would not ask him to do anything he can't do. If he's not fully prepared, he will injure himself because of your lack of preparation. And I think that's going to be an interesting thing to think about while you are talking about the type of strenuous prep work that you did for these long format. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was nothing to be taken for granted when you were prepping for one of these long format three days. I should add that Horses generally had the opportunity to do two of these per year. So you would do one in the spring and one in the fall. Occasionally there would be one in the summer, which is what the Young Riders competition was. But I hadn't done a spring three day and I don't think I was planning on doing a fall one either. So this was going to be our one shot that year, basically all of this fitness work and conditioning and training 
leading up to this one event. There were no backup events. There was no rerouting <laughs> anywhere else. Yeah. You know, that sounds like an awful amount of pressure, but at least you were yeah. prepared. But so you were at Jimmy Wofford's farm in Virginia. Does that mean that Jimmy rode Alex? Yeah. So he did. Um, Alex was unbelievably difficult to ride. He was super tense, super hot, and super reactive. Interestingly, though, he never bucked or reared, and he actually was not at all spooky of anything until he started going advanced and then became super spooky <laughs> until pain in the neck. But yeah, he was quite a character. He really taught me how to really ride on the flat and how important your position and your aids were. So even though our scores were usually pretty dismal, until we kind of progressed further into our career, we had a couple good tests. You know, I really learned how important aids were positioning the horse's body in relation to where you were and what your balance was. So, you know, really important lessons to learn that I don't think you can unless you have a horse like that. He was never going to cover for me. He wasn't going to lie for me. I had to <laughs> ask 100% correct. And even if I did, you know, maybe half the time he would do what I asked. So I was going to say that for, for your scores that you felt like you, you scored pretty well on, I don't think people could really appreciate how hard you work to squeak out those extra points in a test on Alex. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> so I know Jimmy got on him during at least one of our flat lessons. I think it was just once. It's a long time ago, but I, I think people really just couldn't believe how difficult he could be, especially in those early days he would just swing his hindquarters out and just run, run through your leg, just fly through it. And once he started doing that, you had nothing. He was just going <laughs> sideways. And, you know, you could, for as sensitive as he was, you could be kicking as hard as you could on that leg. And he was still going through it. <laughs> I have witnessed um, some video of, of this. <laughs> of you yeah, pony, at some point we'll have to get our act together. To, yeah, literally, like, in I think our first prelim dressage test, probably that spring. Yeah, like, I think we almost, like, went outside like left the, of the ropes yeah because yeah. he yeah. was just like he's just like nope nope not doing it <laughs> he also if you watched him in the field he was the most gorgeous mover you could imagine in a thoroughbred though he did have more action than was appreciated in those days like he had hawk action he had knee action but it was a lot smoother when he was not under saddle so when he was <laughs> tense and also flying through your leg he basically was, looked like a carriage horse or a carousel horse that the catch was just going up and down like a sewing machine. I think we got that uh, comment a lot from judges, you know, and you need to go forward, but finding that, that balance of forward, but not running away with you was super hard with him. Yeah. So, and he was b big and long. He was big, he was long, and he was really, really freaking strong. I've never ridden a horse as strong as him but oddly, he didn't have a hard mouth. I know it sounds really crazy. I think sort of like running through your leg, like he could feel everything that was going on. But I think his mind would just not be there to be able to yeah. allow him to listen. That sounds kind of crazy, but I actually rode him in a nave at home just so I could preserve his mouth as best I could. And so that I could use a little bit of a stronger bit at an event and get a little bit more of a reaction. Well, and so, I think that the nath has remained a pretty tried and true piece of equipment for retraining off the track thoroughbreds these days. Yeah, I probably had like the very first one ever made. Like we had, we had happy mouth bits, but we didn't have anything like that that was 
flexible, but it was still a straight bar. So the one I had was straight, but it could flex in the middle, even though there wasn't yeah. an actual joint there. And yeah. it was also a loose ring, which I thought was very important for him to not let him like brace his jaw against you. But yeah, that bit at home allowed us to get some of that more softness and forward, but not running away. And I think at times I might have ended up showing in it for dressage at certain events kind of later, much later in our career. When he was um, a little bit more trained. So- a little more trained, I would say, you know. That's, yeah. <laughs> and then tell me about Jimmy getting on him. Well, Alex, I guess, was having a tantrum. And he was running through the leg. So Jimmy was just like, all right, like, let me see what we're dealing with here. And he got on him. And I'll never forget, he didn't even, like, bother to adjust the stirrups or anything. He just crossed the stirrups over. I think he just had, like, a Jeff cap on. He probably had riding pants on. I can't remember that part. But I don't think he was, like, planning to ride that day or or (laughs) during that lesson, basically. And, yeah, he rode him for a bit. And I think after the ride... (laughs) the consensus was like hey you know what you've made it this far let's just follow the plan you've been using for the dressage phase and (laughs) your regular routine because we had a couple of flat schools with jimmy before we're going to the big event it wasn't like we had months to do like work and fix his issues so we were like okay you're there we're we're just gonna go with it and and do the best we can i think that says a lot about alex that he was able to stump the mind and body of Jimmy Wofford. So what was your plan in your regular routine and for dressage? So at events, I would take him out a couple hours before dressage, which was super fun when you'd have like an 8 a.m. test, which would mean you'd have to like get there at 6 a.m., right? Or earlier. And I would take him out a couple hours before our dressage test and we would trot for an hour. And not trotting on the bit, not stretching, not doing any sort of work where I was asking anything of him other than to try and not canter. It was really torturous because I am a rider that very much likes to kind of direct and help improve what is going on underneath me. So it's hard to just turn all that off and just be like, okay, we're trotting in a straight line. Okay, we're (laughs) not bending in the right direction. That's fine because we're not even asking you to bend. But my trainer had a theory that horses like him and maybe all horses, I don't know, but definitely off track thoroughbreds, especially hot ones had a very limited kind of like clock (laughs) alarm clock, maybe a limited amount of time that they could mentally and physically perform dressage work. And what this did was it got his mind right without taxing the muscles he'd need for the test. And he wouldn't get angry at me because I hadn't been prodding him to get off my leg prodding him to fix his straightness or anything like that but it was incredibly boring i mean we didn't even have remember ipods probably a lot of our probably a lot of our listeners have never had an ipod they weren't even invented yet i think I what, had a, a what about man. a disc man i had a disc man and not ride with a disc you man can ride with that right you'd, you'd have be to skip a level <laughs> Now we're really aging ourselves. <laughs> yeah. I, and I don't think I had a walk, man, because maybe that would have worked. But anyway, there's no music. There's no entertainment. You're just trotting super fast on a nearly out of control horse, careening around for an hour. <laughs> it's a very long time. I'm sure that got some looks from people around you. <laughs> Probably. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it did work. So he would get untacked and he'd rest for an hour and then he'd get tacked up do a quick warm up and then we'd go right in the ring. 
I occasionally had trouble actually then riding him in the ring because he'd be a different horse. He'd actually be <laughs> rideable. And it's not like this is something I had the time or energy or anything to do like at home as like a training process because I had way too much work to do, especially later when I became a working student and started riding professionally. I mean, I would be doing hour trot sets on four, four horses a day, plus other training rides, stalls to muck, horses to tack up, you know, all that stuff. So this was a thing we did at competitions. And so how'd the rest of training camp go? It was a dream, like spend a week at a gorgeous farm in Virginia, hunt country, basically with someone that you've idolized your entire <laughs> life. And then you're also surrounded by the best young riders in the country. I mean, it was, it was so much fun. I don't recall cross-country schooling while we were there. I think so close to the event, we probably didn't want to risk it. I think Jimmy was of the mind of, well, you've qualified, you've gotten here. So we certainly did show jump practice and we did gallop up some enormous giant hill for our last condition gallop before the event. Do you remember any of the riders that were competing the young riders? Yeah. So in the one star, I was on a team with Sarah Cosenplick. And then the other two riders were Jenny Hanlon and Kelsey Welch. And then on the two-star team was Buck and Nancy Davidson. And I can't remember who else was on the two-star team, to be honest. I'd have to look it up. Um, <laughs> you have to aisle a lot of current names. Yeah. A lot of people have gone on to be very, very successful in their riding careers. So it was a blast. It was really fun. That's really cool. And you talked a little bit about the conditioning that you would do before your other events. What was the conditioning and the work leading up to the big three days? Yeah. So generally when we were in the full competition year and I was working at this full time, our horses would have Mondays off because oftentimes you'd be competing over the weekend. So it just made it easier on the schedule that every Monday the horses get off and that would give us a little break too. They would gallop. I think it depended on the horse and maybe like their breeding, but they would gallop every four days and sometimes every five days. It depended sort of what you were prepping for and what the horse mm -hmm. was like. You know, if it was a warm blood, it would probably be every four days. Alex might've been every five days. <laughs> <laughs> or we would start with, start with every five days galloping and then probably bump it up to every four days and then maybe back off a little bit right before yeah. the big event. And then in between those days, we usually jumped probably once a week and we also did dressage schools and then they were usually pretty quick, like 20, 30 minutes maybe. And then you would go out and trot. So the total time that the horse was being ridden and fully working would end up being at least an hour. And if they didn't do any flat work that day, they would go out and trot for an hour and do 10 minutes of cantering and they weren't sets. They were just 10 minutes of slow cantering when the horses were at the advanced level and it really built your fitness. Let me tell you, 10 minutes I'm is sure. a very long time. At one point I was doing this on four horses a day. Plus, you know, all the other stuff. Speaking of rider fitness, I used to attempt to get off Alex and run next to him at the trot, but that was usually disastrous because I am not a runner. But I did try. It was really fun in Florida when I'd be trying to do it down there and, you know, trying to run the sand next to your horse. It doesn't work very well. <laughs> I, I was actually reading a funny story. I think Jimmy actually talks about it in his book where he was at an event and he got off to run next to his horse. And he was in front of a bunch of 
very good looking big name female riders from the time. I think one of them was D- Don and Sharp was there and he is running and he's looking at them and they're looking at him and he tripped, fell down face first and lost his horse. And he's like, and I knew I had no chance of catching that horse until like next week. And he's like, I learned never to do that again. <laughs> so I can't that imagine what it's terrifying. like trotting next to a three day yeah. fit horse. No, it's impossible. Well, at least for me. (laughs) Then, you know, I would have gotten off. I'd usually be alone, like in the middle of the woods or something, and trying to climb on this 17-hand beast that, I mean, he wouldn't stand still ever, like on a good day. (laughs) He wouldn't stand still if someone was holding him. And then I'm in the woods trying to like climb back on him, you know, for idea. (laughs) Uh, We knew all the trails around all the big events on the East Coast. I remember one time I was out doing trots alone on some back roads in Georgia and I got chased by a pack of wild dogs. It was super fun. Oh my God. It was actually terrifying. I mean, I think I was on Alex and he just bolted because it was literally oh a pack of wild dogs. And <laughs> it was like a do not fall off situation because A, you're never finding your horse again and B, then you're going to be ripped apart by wild dogs. So yeah. Right. It's, it's a lose-lose situation. <laughs> Continue on about gallop days. Depending where we were in the country, we would try to find a hill. And in Florida, that was tough. But somehow, I have found some sort of secret hill in the middle of the Ocala National Forest. Don't ask me where or how. But yeah, I would also go off and gallop like four fit advanced horses by myself every four to five days. I did like gallop days because they were a lot shorter, though, than four hours of trotting. So you basically (laughs) trotted out there, did your gallop, and then you came back and you were done. And that was a a relief sometimes. Didn't you tell me once that your trainer, Michael, once galloped Alex for you? Yeah. I mean, Alex <laughs> was not only impossible to ride on the flat, he was really difficult to gallop. I mean, he was so good on cross country at a competition, but everywhere else he was impossible. I mean, he made it worth <laughs> it, but I usually had to gallop him in a standing martingale. And then I think eventually I progressed to like a standing martingale and draw reins just to keep him from hitting me in the face with the top of his head. <laughs> he just was wild. And, you know, like he didn't do that. I mean, he threw his head around on cross country, but not to this level. So funny story. The reason that Michael was riding him was because we thought I broke my foot. His top advanced horse at the time got spooked by a peacock that was walking around a car looking at its reflection <laughs> and I was leading him into the field and this horse was like 17-3 and he jumped and landed right on my foot on the top of my foot and basically like crushed all the soft tissue in my foot so it was out of riding commission not for as long as you would have thought like luckily it wasn't broken but it was really swollen so anyway he decided to gallop him for me because we had an event coming up while all this was going on and I got to the barn and he was just getting off of Alex and he just basically like handed me the reins and shook his head and like walked away. I think he was just like, I don't know how you even do this. So I think, <laughs> I think that was probably the last time he wrote him. Like I said, he really was no fun to ride at home and people listening to this are going to be like, why did you even ride this horse? I mean, the, The reason was because when he saw a jump, when he saw a cross country jump, he was going to jump it. And I've never felt that before or since to the level that he had the desire to get over the jump. And that's what I needed. Like I knew if I wanted to compete at the top levels, I needed a horse that was going to jump the jump. And that's, that's what he did. 
So getting back to your first long format three day, you've been called up to the area two young writers team for the one star now two star long format. And I think we skipped over this, but can you just break down what the long format was like for those who haven't experienced it? Yeah, it was really different. You still had dressage, cross country and show jumping, but cross country day was actually called speed and endurance. So there were four phases. It was modeled after the cavalry test of horse and rider on the battlefield. So there was a lot more stamina required and quite frankly, a lot more speed required in certain parts. And keep in mind, you did this all in one day. This was continuous. You had one 10 minute break before cross country. So you started off on roads and tracks, the first section of roads and tracks. So this was like a 10 to 15 minute trot warm up for the next phase. Sometimes it was longer at the longer three days, but I think at the one star level, it was a 15 minute warm up, and it was a marked course. So it was usually like a trail through the woods or a path around the fields or something like that. But it was time. Then you had to go through certain checkpoints to make sure that you didn't cut any corners. But even though it was time, the time was usually very generous for a fit thoroughbred. So you usually ended up kind of like walking a bit, trying to not get into you know, crossing the finish line too early because then you'd have to stand around and wait before steeplechase, which was the next phase. <laughs> Which you probably didn't want to be standing around waiting for steeplechase. No, no, you didn't. Not on any of the horses I rode, at least. So steeplechase was timed. And unlike what you might think of as steeplechase today being where there's a field of horses going at the same time, there was one horse at a time, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> but similar. So usually it was on a track or close to a track or a field with hopefully good footing, it was usually on grass, as far as I know. And you had to basically get into a start box. Luckily, you could have a helper that would help you get in. In those days, the start boxes were three-sided. You couldn't come in through the back like you now can. So you had to actually go in, turn your horse around, and then leave. And it was a very fast pace. I think it was between 640 to 690 meters per minute, depending on your level. And that's like more than a hundred meters per minute faster than cross country. I think it's been described at at like three quarter racing speed, basically, if you want to think about how fast it is. So it's not full out racing speed, but it's not a lot slower. And then on top of that, there were usually eight to 10 or so enormous freaking brush jumps. They were so huge, which was good actually, because they were designed to be jumped at speed. So you could really just allow the horse to do the work. They were very forgiving. The horse could totally brush through them. They were not solid, but they were big. And you still wanted to hope you would see like a little bit of a stride to them at that rate of speed. At the end of steeplechase, once you got all the way around, and this would be four to six minutes. So it's not a full cross-country course, but you're out there for a bit and you're going really fast. And at the end, there, there luckily would be a farrier, usually, because if you had a horse like mine, we almost always lost our shoes on steeplechase. And then you could also have helpers from your crew help sponge your horse off, wipe out their mouth, give them a little drink, give you a little drink if you needed it, and then hopefully get your shoes fixed on your horse if you needed to. Also, if you had any broken tack, I've known people that, you know, have had stirrups break or... 
a rain break or something like that, or maybe it got weakened, you could also swap those out. So you would have prepped gotcha. all that. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. If you survived steeplechase, then you would <laughs> go on to the second part of Roads and Tracks. And this was much longer. So it was still usually around like a trot pace. I want to say it was like 220 meters per minute. And it allowed recovery after steeplechase. But it was usually about 40 to 50 minutes or so long. So you're out there for a good chunk of time. And when you add it all up, by the time you would finish this phase, you've already been on the horse doing somewhat vigorous to very vigorous activity for at least an hour by the end of these three phases. I usually try to let Alex walk (laughs) after a steeplechase. (laughs) It was usually kind of just like a losing battle because he just wanted to go, go, go. But if we could, we'd walk because he had such a big trot that making time here was never an issue. It was timed. Be a really silly place to get time faults, but it did happen. Sometimes you get lost because you kind of buzz around that once and kind of think, okay, yeah, we go from here to here to here. But think about that. On top of remembering your cross-country course, you need to remember three other courses, basically, that were, were flagged with you know, not always the best kind of methods or most clear <laughs> path. So it did, it did happen that people would get lost basically and, and end up with unfortunate time faults here. And then, like I said earlier, sometimes some riders would get off and walk or jog next to their horse for this part, but I never attempted that in an actual event because that would have just been terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so after you finished all this riding, it's like the fun is only starting. And this is the part that most people ever saw was after this, but you'd go into what was called the vet box or the 10 minute box. And you'd be greeted by basically your pit crew that you had assembled beforehand. So friends, grooms, family members, coaches, extra hands, whomever you could basically get. And everyone had a little bit of a different rule of thumb of what they would do, but some people would actually like to take off their saddles and really cool the horse down, especially if it was hot, but you only had 10 minutes. And basically You had 10 minutes to get the horse cooled down. They would take their temperature, pulse, and respiration when you came into the vet box. There would be vets there and and techs that would do that. They would take that again before you'd be cleared to go out and cross country. So basically that the horse had recovered enough. They would also jog the horse. So you're doing all of this stuff in 10 minutes, which could get pretty stressful and pretty hectic. And the horse knows what's coming next. So they're probably pretty amped as well. Yeah, I think there are some pretty amped horses. And the poor vets and, and people that would be trying to take their temperatures when they're, you know, <laughs> super high and super fit, it was it was tough. You really had to have good handlers in there, people you trusted, people that would make the right decisions and get the job done. So probably an undervalued part of it would be assembling the right people to help you at that moment. Hopefully you would be able to get a drink maybe use the bathroom if you had to, and then review any last minute cross country plans. If you went later in the day, usually you would get some sort of updates about how a part of the course was riding, which is what happens today, but you'd be out on course for the hour before this. So it's not like you had the opportunity to watch as much as maybe you could today. So you would rely on updates and there was no jumbotron there or anything like that. (laughs) And so you'd make your final decision on your route. There was also a farrier there if you had any issues. And if they jogged sound, they were fit and ready to continue on the cross country. Your assistant would tighten up your girth and tighten up your overgirth. And you'd get legged up 
and then grease would get applied to the horse's legs, and then off he would go to cross country, phase D. And you talked a little bit about the vet box and your team that supported you in the vet box, but how did you plan for what you needed in the vet box? So what were your essentials and how did you learn what you should bring? It's funny. If you look at some of the older cross country books, there'll usually be like a picture of the equipment on a tarp, like in the vet box. And I think I grew up reading those. So I'm sure I had like lists upon lists from day one of what I was going to pack in the vet box. But (laughs) I also was in pony club and it was really awesome prep for this because there's a lot of the stuff that you would have to have ready at a pony club rally. So the things that I personally would pack would be the most important thing I think was a used set of your horse's shoes. So a set that like probably could have been reset if they needed to, you would ask the ferry to pull them for you, you know, make sure they were cleaned up, straightened up. Then you would actually put the, st- the studs that you were using that day in those shoes and you would bring them with you so that if your horse lost a shoe, they could just quickly tack that one on. It's already formed. It's already fitted. You know, it fits and you've got the right studs in there. So it really made that process very quick if you needed to do that. And then those would also go to the end of steeplechase. So your helpers had to go from wherever the end of steeplechase was <laughs> with this equipment, which was very important, right? And then bring that to the vet box. So sometimes that was a little bit of a debacle because it might be miles away, depending where steeplechase was. So just another right. bit of kind of planning we had to do. And then just typical like cooling out stuff like water, sponges, scrapers, ice, usually an extra bridle extra reins, any tack basically that might break, like stirrup leathers or a girth, extra boots for the horse, and duct tape, extra gloves for the rider, because usually your gloves would be pretty soaked by this point. It'd be nice to swap them out if you could. And then a couple of other like fun little things we used to do was we would braid the very first bit of mane behind the bridle path, and then you'd loop a string through the top of the bridle's crown piece, And the reason being why was in those days, if you fell off, you could get back on and complete the course. But if you pulled the horse's bridle off while you fell off, you probably weren't going to be able to continue. (laughs) (laughs) So the thought being that that would just help secure the top of the the crown piece in case when you came off, you went to pull the bridle off. Yeah, that's a good trick. Yeah. And we'd also duct tape or electrical tape all of the keepers on the bridle for extra security. We'd put duct or electrical tape around the horse's boots. I do think that boot technology has improved a bit since then, but at the time, sometimes your Velcro would be getting a little older or get really wet and soggy and the straps of the boots start flying around. So this would just help prevent that. And then another thing that we did, which I'm sure eventers at the top levels probably still do now, but we would write all of our times on our arm. However, these would be all the times from like, you know, four phases, minute markers (laughs) for each of the phase. So it really got to be quite a lot written on your arm with permanent marker. I think I've seen that in some like videos and and pictures of people competing in the long format. Their whole arm is just covered like it's like a big tattoo. I had a quick question. I don't think you mentioned it yet, but were you guys still having to carry a certain amount of weight when you were riding long format? I think that that restriction got removed like just before. I started at that level but yeah there was there had been a weight requirement Minimum, right yeah was it yes. 160 yeah I think it was 165 so 
including your your tack, I think at least your saddle, plus you and your riding gear, would have to get onto scales. And then there would be, you'd have a saddle pad with lead weights that they would actually put lead. <laughs> yeah. And at the end of the event, when you got off across country, you had to pull that off and go through the scales and be that weight, which if you think about the amount that you were probably sweating, yeah, you might drop a couple pounds, but yeah, I thankfully never had to deal with that. Um, gotcha. I think that was one, one thing that everyone was happy to see go away. And then some of the stuff that has been outdated because of the advances in tack design and stuff like that. So back then you guys had overgrowth. How were those functioning and how are those different than how we do things now? Yeah, I mean, we didn't have monoflap saddles in those days. So the, the overgrowth really did two things. It was a piece of usually it was like a wool webbing. And if it was a good one, it had a piece of elastic on it. with It was a big strap. And it basically just went around your entire top of your saddle and you thread it through leather straps on your girth, and then you would tighten that. So the like proposed reason for it was if your girth or your billets broke during the stress of the competition, hopefully at least your saddle would stay on well enough to like you could safely pull up. I don't know if anyone's <laughs> girth ever broke and they continue with just the overgirth. That, that would be <laughs> probably... But thankfully, I never had to deal with that happening. But later on, one of my jumping saddles, I had an older, very smooth flap jumping saddle. And the the flap would actually creep up under my leg in midair, galloping or jumping. And so that <laughs> helped just keep those flaps because we had the double flap saddles to help keep those in place. It was a little more comfortable to ride in. But yeah, I don't think anyone uses an overgrowth anymore. Yeah, I think the stress of the entire day was so much that it was just like, you know, it's probably just not needed now because you're out in cross country for what, eight to 12 minutes, something like that. Um, yeah. Much shorter. So, yeah. and then grease, grease is still sometimes used today, but we would put it on the fronts of the horse's legs and sometimes up to the point of the shoulder. And the goal was, you've ever seen the old eventing videos with white on the horse's legs and up to the stifle on the hind leg. That yeah. way, if the horse got a little tired, maybe, you know, hit some brush or, hung their stifles on a drop fence that hopefully it would help kind of slide over and not give the horse a cut or, you know, no one was ever hopeful that it was going to save something horrible, but it was more of like the next day we have to jog these horses up. If we can prevent any of those like little nicks and cuts or things from irritating the horse, then this would help with that. But there was a big rule, which was one person handled the grease. <laughs> it went on the horse. <laughs> After the rider was in the saddle and then they don't go anywhere near the reins, the stirrups, you know, any, the saddle, anything like that, because that would just be horrible. <laughs> and then I have one last little tidbit for you of eventing oldies style, which was we would wrap our stirrup iron pads with vet wrap. So nobody had fancy stirrup irons. Like what were those? We had like the old fashioned, like Phyllis stirrup irons or whatever. And that wrap actually helped keep your foot in the stirrup when you're going through water. It still works today, as a matter of fact. So you can try it. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm pretty sure I've ridden in one of your saddles that still had the vet wrap on the, on the yeah. stirrup irons. <laughs> yeah, before um, I went over to the dark side and got, got good ones. <laughs> so on to phase four or cross country phase, the, the most fun phase. 
I was reading an article with Jimmy Wofford and that was done for Practical Horsemen not long after the switch to short format eventing, which I think he had a lot of opinions about in the beginning. And one of the things yeah. that really stood out to me was that he mentioned that if you had not ridden the first three phases thoughtfully, that you wouldn't be competitive in phase D. And he goes on to say that how you rode the, the first three phases, your awareness of your horse's physical and mental limits, and knowing how much gas you had left in the tank would help prepare you for phase D. What was that like for you? And do you feel like that resonates? Yeah, absolutely. It it was a really a true test of horsemanship, not only because of what happened at the event, but because of all of the conditioning work that you would have to do, you really got to know your horse. You were spending a lot of time in tack and it wasn't just schooling or just goofing off. Like it was regimented and you learned better. Okay. This one gets tired a little more quickly. You know, this one does this. So I, I think that that totally resonates. And I think knowing that horse and what they were like, would help you tremendously, especially in your first three day with them. I think after you do more, you kind of learn a little bit, but there's no way to prep for the amount of fatigue that the horse and rider would feel at the end of cross country. I mean, yeah. you can't get there without doing what we would be doing on that day. And what's tricky is you've got a tired horse and a tired rider. And how do you yeah. overcome that obstacle? Yeah. How do you know when to ask each other to dig dig a little deeper? Right, That's right. And also, and I'm not going to relate this to Jimmy, but I, I think that the the feeling was a little bit more back in those days of you were to complete the course. Not that the horse's welfare wasn't taken into consideration. It absolutely was. But I think especially because you'd done so much preparation and there was so much riding on that event. And then if you didn't complete it, you would have to wait maybe a whole year before you could do another one. So there was a huge emphasis on getting across those finish flags. If you yeah. could do it, to do it. Which is why you want to be as prepared as you possibly could be. Yes, and it's also why you'd want to be sitting on an OTTB. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The stamina, the drive, the heart, the whole thing. Yeah. The cross-country courses then, I mean, now we're talking about cross-country courses that are a lot shorter and they don't cover as much ground. What were the yeah. uh, courses like then? They were longer. And at the at a three-day, well, for sure, at a three-day event, the courses were longer and they were usually pretty maxed out though you would often have easier options that would take you a longer amount of time. I feel like that might be a little bit different now. There's still options. We were at Maryland recently and you could see there's options at some of the more complex jumps. But I think back then, like the options would take you like a serious amount of time, but the jumps would be quite small. So it would be, it would be not like the same question made smaller. It would be, okay, you have to like loop around here and jump something small and loop back. And it was definitely designed that if you had a tired horse, you could still yeah. get them home if you were smart about it. You were just going to pay the cost of time penalties, basically. Gotcha. But we also, a couple things, you could get back on after a fall and the rider could even fall twice at a certain point i know the rules were kind of changing as i was progressing up the levels but wasn't there a zone around the yeah the, the well yeah so there were there were two things one 
we had penalty zones. I can't remember exactly when they got taken away, but I'm pretty certain we still had them when I did my first three day. And so this would be a rectangular area in front of and behind the jump. And let's call it, I don't know, 30 feet in front of and behind. I'm making that up, but just to give you kind of a visual. So between the flags and 30 feet in front and 30 feet behind, you had to be on the horse. Okay. Horse had to be on its feet and anything that happened in that area, you'd be penalized for. So if the horse stopped, if you circled, you know, cross your tracks, anything like that, if you presented to the jump, that's how you would get penalties. If you fell off, that's how you would get penalties. Now, if you were able to hang on, if you got (laughs) unseated on a jump and you were able to kind of hang on and get your horse outside of the penalty zone, you could get off and then get back on and you would not be penalized. So totally different than what there is (laughs) today. Yeah. (laughs) I think there's some really good old videos of Lucinda Green from just clinging on, like (laughs) clinging on and like trying to like cluck to her horse because her horse was being a good boy and he stopped and she, she was like, no, come on. I need you to (laughs) get two more feet. So yeah, that was definitely a big difference back in the day. And, you know, like we were talking about the fatigue, it was tough. You get tired, your horse would get tired and you're not used to that. So, and the horse isn't used to that. So there's only really one way to learn how to gut that out. And that is to just do it and, and push yourself and, you know, find that, that next level of, okay, I can do this. We're on jump 20. I've got six more jumps to go. I can hold it together and I can do this. Yeah. And since thoroughbreds have always been bred for endurance and galloping at high speeds, and it's just hundreds of years of of that, do you feel like during the long format days that they had an edge over other breeds? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think at that time, a lot of Irish horses were really successful as well, but I will bet that they also had a lot of thoroughbred blood. Another thing I think that happened around this time is that the weighting of the scoring for dressage got more important. And so then we started to see some more super fancy, heavier horses that were really good in dressage, but they could not get around the cross country or they'd have time faults or they'd have a stop or they wouldn't have the stamina to come back on the third day and show jump clean. So even though they might put up posts a really good score in the dressage, the thoroughbred, even if they were... 20 points lower had a real easy way to climb the leaderboard in those days because of the speed and endurance. I think the other advantage of an OTTB pair, they get so fit at an early age. And it's, I believe this was something that I read that Bruce Davidson said a million years ago, but that once they've been that fit at a super early age, it's generally easier to keep them fit and get them fit again throughout their career. So unlike a warm blood or a you know draft cross that hasn't ever been racing fit, it's more easy to kind of get back to that level on an OTTB. And with that emphasis on speed and endurance and bravery, you could really make some serious moves up the leaderboard. I was also reading an article that talked a little bit about the span of a year and say you had two of big events that you were gearing towards the time that you started to bring the horse back into work, prepare for an event and the recovery period created a mentally more prepared horse. And I think it's a very interesting thing to think about versus 
the kind of eventing that's happening now where horses are competing every other weekend or, and they're just competing year round. I wonder how much of the old style of training the horses really plays into creating a mentally tough horse as well. Yeah. You know, it's a big difference how the horse show calendar looks these days. I mean, you could not go to Florida and prep your horse at home and get them fit. And there would be a couple of lead up events before whatever the major three day event was in the spring. So you could still do it. You did not have to go South. It was hard, especially if you didn't have an indoor. I mean, you needed to build that, that resistance and that tolerance and get through the bad weather, doing your trots and in snow banks and things like that. (laughs) Definitely did plenty of that. But I think having that break after we would do a big three day with the horses, they would get a minimum of a month off. And I know there was some riders and trainers would maybe hack the horses during this time or kind of let them down a little more gradually, but we always just turned them out and let them be horses. I think that was really good for them to have that mental break of not being in training year round. So they'd get a month, six weeks, depending on what was coming up next for them. And then you would start kind of slowly bringing them back into work and starting your slow conditioning work. So maybe you go out and walk for 45 minutes and trot for 10 minutes, something like that. Though with my horse, I found he never, (laughs) he was always ready to jump right back into work. Right. You know, I was going to say, if you, if you need a little inspiration on what it's like to have a horse that was kind of like Alex and what it's like bringing them back into work after a long winter break, just follow Laura Collette's Instagram page where she shows videos of jumping London 52 after he's had a long vacation. Yeah. I think I've seen a couple of those. They're pretty, they're pretty opening. And once they get to that level, you, I think the best horses have a little bit of an edge and they're a little cocky. So they're kind of going to give it to you and be like, okay, well let's see. Okay. (laughs) See what we can do. (laughs) And just showing that, you know, they're happy and they're excited. I mean, these horses are excited to be back at work. Yeah. They love their jobs and they love jumping. They would not do it if, you know, you can't force a horse around a cross country course. I mean, you just can't after a certain level. It's not going to happen. Especially, yeah, at that that level. Well, um, getting back to your first long format three day. So you survived the training camp with Jimmy. You're ready to go to your event. And where was your first long format held? So it was in Illinois. It was the Young North American Young Rider Championships. And I think it was held at Temple Farms in Illinois. They also had Lipizzaners there, which was really cool. Um, <laughs> and I think that the dressage ring that I competed in was actually their performance ring at the farm, which was pretty fun. That's it's really, really cool. kind of a neat experience. Yeah. Always fascinated by that. And anyway, so we got there a day or two before the competition and got settled in before our first jog. Oh, the jog. Did you have any cool outfits that you wore for your first jog? I mean, oh, wait, I think I've actually I think I've actually seen pictures from your first jog. I I thought I looked all right, but you know, I, <laughs> well that I was, was like a fashion show. I was no fashionista even even <laughs> best of times you know pants didn't come in long long lengths at that time so I wore a lot of you know <laughs> high waters but 
Honestly, I think I was really so busy with everything else. I didn't really pay attention to what we were supposed to wear for jogs until I'd be like, oh, no, I have no nice clothes. What am I going to do? But anyway, for this, it was a, we were on a team. So we all wore similar outfits. And uh, we all wore, I think, a white polo or a white shirt. And then we had to wear either khaki pants or a khaki skirt. So I actually wore a khaki skirt. Oh, okay. We're going to have to dig up that picture. (laughs) Yeah, I've got it somewhere. But yeah, it was pretty uneventful, really. I don't know what all the hijinks are about these days. I don't recall that. I mean, my horse was pretty, pretty hyped up for things, but we went in, jogged. We had been instructed how to properly trot the horses up. So you would present them, square them up for the judges to look at, walk off. Once you're walking, pick up the jog. And then bring them back to a walk before you would turn and you would be on the outside of the turn. So you turn to the right and then make sure the horse is straight before jogging straight back, picking up the trot again. So, yeah, I mean, it was pretty uneventful and no fashionista here, that is for sure. (laughs) I read a fantastic quote by Jimmy in which he says, Quote, there's a moment when horses walk up to be inspected, stand in front of the ground jury, look over the crowd and show us the look of eagles. I've seen this look all my life and I've wondered why we see it so often with classic event horses. I think that look is not one of arrogance, but of knowledge. These horses know what they can do and they know they're not afraid of doing anything but their best. I think it's safe to say that Alex had the look of Eagles. Oh yeah. I mean, I have a really great picture of him. I'll have to dig up from one of the first years that plantation was held and he's just looking over the cross country course and um, I mean, you could just see it like just that kind of that presence and that confidence. Yeah. And the, you know, I mean, it's such a perfect, you know, phrase for it because until you see it, I don't think you can really describe it. Yeah. But, oh, it just yeah. It gives me goosebumps to think about, you know? Yeah, for sure. So how did you go about walking your courses? And did Jimmy do that with you or did you have anyone that went with you guys when you did that? Oh, yeah, for sure. Usually there would be like an official course walk. And a lot of times, and that would be like the whole group. So all of the riders from the competition with probably the TD or members of the ground jury, a lot of times they would take you around in trucks, hopefully, or some sort of vehicle around roads and tracks. (laughs) So you didn't have to walk the whole thing. Yeah, they're for hours. Usually we would walk it and wheel it too at some point during the week leading up. There was a lot of walking going on. Nobody, you know, we didn't have mopeds or little bikes or anything like that. So, but yeah, I was super nervous. I had a lot of faith in my horse. I think at this point, the only issues we'd had on cross country were with drop steps that he'd never seen before. And he just didn't get it that you had to drop down once and merely drop down again. I think we had a stop. And then I think I like took him and went down the lower step first. And then we did the whole thing. And anyway. And occasionally he could peek at water, I think, leading up to our first three-day. It wasn't like the most natural thing for him in the beginning, as it isn't for most horses. So other than that, though, when he would see a fence, it was like you were riding like a giant magnet or something. Like he would just be <laughs> mag, like pulled along, like literally like if you have to, you know, you have two magnets and you can feel like the, the, the polar... The yeah. energy that's what but except that it was pulling you towards it not away from it <laughs> yeah it was a crazy feeling like you just knew once he locked onto that jump that he was going to jump it and 
you know, minus those drop steps or a few things throughout his career that he hadn't seen. Like usually we were on the other side as soon as we <laughs> attempted. So I can't recall exactly like during that week when we saw the course for the first time. But from what I remember, it was a pretty big course. There were two proper water jumps with like jumps with drops into the water which I don't think we had even done that in a competition. We definitely jumped into water, did drops, things like that. But these were proper, pretty big drops in the water. And then um, there were some big brush fences I was worried about that needed to be jumped on an angle. There were several corners. I think one was two steps up to a corner. And then okay. there, yeah, there was a corner with a bounce option. You know, there were like, <laughs> and it's funny it's too. real deal. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we had bounces on courses back then, too, which I don't think you necessarily see all that often anymore. But I do remember we walked the course with Jimmy, and I think he wheeled it with us. We would know each minute on course where we should be in order to make the time. Gotcha. Well, first you had to get through the worst part, dressage with Alex. So how was that? (laughs) And what was the environment like? Were there a lot of people there watching? Was the warm-up wild? It's kind of funny. I don't remember the warm up at all. I was thinking about this earlier today. So I stuck to the plan. We did our pre ride where I went out and trotted forever. And <laughs> the test was ridden in a really pretty arena. Like I said, I think it's where they actually did the performances for the Lipizzan Stallions at, at the farm. And, you know, there were some spectators there. It wasn't like a huge spectator event, but. Other riders, trainers, coaches, their friends and family, that sort of thing. And we actually pulled off probably a better test than anybody would have thought going in. (laughs) As far as our training process went, I remember that everybody was pretty pleased with it. We weren't expecting me to go in there and, and place high after dressage. But I mean, the trot work was steady. He was obedient. He was consistent. Canter transitions were you know, a little, a little exciting as they remained for the remainder of our career, but it really was a sigh of relief. I thought we went in there and did as professional a test as we certainly were able to. And I was on a team, so did not want to let my team down. That was really important. So I was pleased. Just to kind of follow up on the whole team aspect, was it a team where you dropped a score? It was run along the lines of the Olympic format of the time, whereby one riders, one horse and rider's score after the event was completed would be dropped. I think so that's I, right. And once you had dressage all done, did you feel a sigh of relief or do, were you kind of then getting into your mental game for the next day? I think probably a bit of both. You know, I think that I was really excited because we had performed as well as or exceeded what we thought we could do in dressage. And I was quite nervous about the course. Like this was our fifth. Now we had done five prelims, I think, leading up to this. And one of which was the drop step episode where we had to stop. So we had four, we had four clean prelims, but this was a championship track at that level. So yeah, I was nervous and I was, I was getting onto my, let's walk the course 500 more times and figure out what the heck we're doing. <laughs> but you knew you were on a cross country horse. Yes. Like I said, I had a lot of confidence in him. I knew that was our opportunity to shine. I also was nervous because I had never ridden roads and tracks or steeplechase and really had no idea what to expect. But we'll talk about that (laughs) 
when we get there. Um, and where were you in the order of go for the team? I was second or third. I can't recall, but I certainly wasn't first or last. The rider that went behind me was on a more experienced, I think the horse had gone, she and the horse had gone intermediate a few times. So I think they were in the fourth cleanup position. So how did the first three phases go for you? Yeah. So we started off as we were talking about with roads and tracks and then steeplechase. One thing I should have mentioned was that the steeplechase course at this farm was on a beautiful grass track that actually had like a white PVC inside rail, like a like racetrack. Race track. <laughs> I, think it had rail, I think it had rails on both sides, to be honest. I'd have to look at the video, but definitely had an inside rail. And our phase A of roads and tracks was actually looping around the outside of the racetrack while oh the other horses were galloping on steel chase. So it was tough to even get him around phase A because he was so excited and he knew exactly what he was there for. Like it was really crazy. Like we got into the start box for steeplechase phase B and he took off so fast out of the start box. I I almost fell off backwards. Like I'm not joking. <laughs> I, like I had never felt anything like that before. I was like it's like a rocket it was literally like a rocket and from there i was pretty much like okay (laughs) i mean going i guess i just need to steer and sit as still as possible and stay balanced and try to keep him as balanced as i can and just let him do his job i hadn't written steeplechase before it wasn't even a thing yet to go and practice you know i know that they do clinics now and, and things like that but we all just kind of winged it back then. I went one minute and I was like, oops, I went really yeah. way too fast. Yeah. Okay, now I know I have to go slower. Looking at my watch, I'm at the minute marker and my watch hasn't beeped yet. Oh, whoops. So I just knew I had to go fast, but you know, not that fast. <laughs> Maybe not that fast. Um, yeah. 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 So yeah, we were like way up on the clock at the first minute marker. I think we were 20 or 30 seconds up on the clock, which I don't even know if that's possible. But at some point on that steeplechase course, we were way, way, way faster than we were supposed to go. But like I thought I was trying to slow him down. I don't think I actually knew what that meant at the time. That If you watch the video, I'm just like tucked up there and going around with him. I'm kind of thinking it's fun, probably, slash terrifying. <laughs> but the other thing that I don't know if we mentioned in the first episode about Alex, but he was a roarer. He made a very serious breathing noise and he had at least a pa- partially paralyzed flap and I had not done wind surgery on him yet. So but it always makes me kind of chuckle when someone that's buying a, a thoroughbred is like, oh, you know, it can't have any wind issues or anything like that. Here I was, I went up, up to advance on a horse that roared before we did the, I mean, that's just what we did in those days. Yeah. So, <laughs> And what was it like galloping that fast and jumping those big steeplechase fences? I was pretty scared of them. The cool thing was Alex just saw the rail and he just knew his job and he just went right over to it. So at least we saved ground. I mean, maybe that's how we were so under the time. I don't know. <laughs> I, was, I was hanging on. You know, I was just like, okay, we're going to do this. And then, like I said, I, I was claiming I was trying to slow him down, but... My coach, Michael, watched the video later and was like, if you were trying to slow him down, you should have been leaning backwards, trying to like 
rip his teeth out because I don't (laughs) see that at all. And you're basically going at warp speed and there, you know, you can never do this. I got quite, I got quite a talking to about what I did there, by the way. (laughs) But But you, but you survived. I survived. He survived. He eventually started to get tired and we still ended up well under the time allowed. I mean, he just had an unreal stride. Like I had never felt anything like this. I don't even know how to really describe it, except that you just felt like you were like suspended on this big bridge and occasionally they would touch the ground and push off again. So it was just like (laughs) leap, 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 but on a freight train, but a really kind of fun one. And the jumps are just wild. The first few, he did these huge leaps over them. And I think by the end, he figured out that he could actually touch the brush a little. That's the other thing is they had to learn that they could brush through these fences and they didn't have to do these huge leaps over them. But yeah, that was was quite an experience. And then you had your second part of Roads and Tracks and then on to the Vet Box and Cross Country. Yes, I don't really remember too much from the second part. I think I was just fighting with him the whole time to try to get him to slow down, probably. (laughs) That's how that went. That phase was never super fun with him or other horses that I rode. It's tough sometimes when they're that hyped up and you just want them to chill and just recover and whatnot. So anyway, we came into the vet box next or the 10 minute box like we were talking about before. My mom and Anne, the woman I worked for at the time, great friend throughout my life, they had driven out and they were there to help, which was just amazing. I remember Jimmy going over the course plan with me. I think the plan was still to take all the direct routes. And I also remember him walking over to Alex without saying a word. He just took my reins and moved them from the second ring of my three ring bit down to the lowest ring of my three ring bait to basically give me more control and i think i started to protest because i had never ridden him with my reins the more like severe level of it and he just silenced me with a look i guess word got back about our performance on steeplechase and he wanted to make sure i didn't get run off with again (laughs) that's amazing and so it must have felt like a whirlwind in the vet, vet box your first time like what was that like Oh, I mean, 10 minutes goes by like that. Let's come over. You jog your, you talk to your coach. We cool the horse down as much as we can. You get a quick drink and they jog your horse. You get a leg up and off you go. I mean, it's so fast. Not too much time to think other than just focus on your plan. Run through your minute markers. Maybe think through if there are any combinations. You also have to know what the long routes would be in case you had trouble. Mm -hmm. But hopefully you had committed all that to memory before now. And it's just focus time. Yeah. And was there anything special that you did on the day of cross country to help you prepare? Maybe not in the vet box, but like before you even started out? Yeah. I'm not sure when in my time riding these levels I started doing this. I think it was probably around this time. But I would find a quiet spot somehow for five to 10 minutes, usually on the morning of cross country. And I would literally close my eyes and visualize us jumping successfully around the course, starting with the first jump. And that gave me a lot of confidence. You know, it was like I'd already done it. But if I couldn't visualize us getting over a specific jump, then I would have to like think long and hard about why. 
and then consider altering my plan if I just could not visualize it. So it was a very important process for me. And I think it helped me kind of work out mentally, A, that I knew the course, I know the alternate routes, but also like that you can do this. You can actually do this because it's pretty scary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of sports psychologists would would really like your technique of doing that. So, yeah, uh, there... I mean, I, I, it's, and I didn't learn that from anybody. I just started doing it somehow. But yeah, I think that's probably yeah. a recommended technique now. Yeah, for but. sure. Were there any jumps on the course that you remember specifically worrying about? I mean, all of them, but um, I do remember a couple of combinations early on the course there. I feel like it was jump three and four or four and five or A and B, whatever it was. There were two huge brush fences and they were set on a pretty severe angle. And it was like kind of a bit of a half stride, if I recall correctly. So you had to really, really know your line between the two jumps. They're both on a quite an angle. And then you also have to make sure you hit your stride perfectly and your perfect distance basically to take off. So we really hadn't done anything like that before, but we got to the first jump on this perfect forward stride up to the base, but still forward. And he just ate it up and we got the better of the two striding combinations there and really rode beautifully. So that gave me a lot of confidence. And then I remember being concerned about the two water jumps. So the first one was a table with a 90 degree left turn to a solid jump with a drop into water. And like I said earlier, I don't think we'd actually done one of those on course yet. So (laughs) I still have the old VHS tape and I gave him this big like wallop before (laughs) the jump that he probably did not need because then he just basically jumped halfway into (laughs) the water (laughs) jump. (laughs) and he just powered through it. The second water jump on course had a bigger drop. And I remember he jumped in so big and probably because I'd probably walloped him again before it because I hadn't learned my lesson the first time. And (laughs) I got pitched forward on landing and he locked on to the two stars. So the level above me, there was a skinny jump in the water and luckily I got my reins and my seat organized in time to pull him off of that. And then I think we had a jump maybe on the other side of the water or a couple strides out of the water. And we were able to get through that part too. So did you guys end up going clear? Sadly, no, I had a really, really dumb run out at a right-handed corner, which was off a left-hand curve. So I learned a very, very important lesson about my horse right then and there. And I think about riding all horses, but he had a tendency to pop that right shoulder And if he was going to drift in the air over a jump, he'd drift to the right. And so when you're turning left and you have a jump that's a corner that's inviting the right run out, he popped that shoulder. He never locked onto the corner and we, he just went around it. And I was like in shock because he had always jumped everything. Right. And we circled back and I jumped the alternate route, which was bounce and just carried on. I was really disappointed though, but I knew that. I had to carry forward for the team that I was on and, and keep going and go quickly and, you know, get around the rest of the course. But I was super proud of my horse overall to be six years old, a year and a half off the track. It was just incredible. He cooled out super quickly, was basically a crazy monster to lead back to the barn. Literally like he had done no work at all <laughs> <laughs> and he's ready to go around again. 
Well, that's back to why you want to be on an OTTB, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, he could have used like an ounce of chill, maybe, or two ounces <laughs> of chill, but he did get tired. He did get tired at the end of the course. And that, that was like we talked about earlier, learning how to deal with that fatigue <clears throat> is was very important in this. Um, and his recovery afterwards was just amazingly quick. And so at the end of cross country day, how was the team doing? I don't remember exactly where we were sitting in the standings going into the final day, but I know that two of our riders went clear on cross country. I of course had one stop and the fourth rider had two stops or runouts actually at the same corner I had trouble with. So all of our horses luckily recovered well and they were all fit and happy to continue, which was great. We all got through the final jog without issue and we were on to show jumping and my show jumping round was okay. I had one unfortunate rail at the second to last or the last jump. Otherwise, we would have been clear. But our team actually ended up in second place. We earned the, the silver medal. And that was just such an unforgettable experience. And I got to be on the podium and get a medal and all that good <laughs> stuff. So, you know, I was so thankful to get through my first three-day with a completion. And then not only that, but winning an award was pretty amazing. So... My horse was fit and sound and happy and ready, ready for a break and then to go on. Until next. And were there a lot of other thoroughbreds that were competing at the Young Riders that year? That's a great question. Our team had almost all thoroughbreds. So yeah, it was definitely more common and especially for young riders because at that time, again, I think the sport was a lot different and it wasn't like a young rider gets a schoolmaster to compete. These were usually horses that we made up ourselves. And when you're that age, a lot of times you don't have a ton of money. So you're looking for something of a less expensive option. So yeah, there were a lot of thoroughbreds there. That's really cool. Well, Emily, thank you so much for sharing your story with us about taking your OTTB Alex to both of your first long format CCI One Stars. Stay tuned for future installments where we follow Emily and Alex along their journey to the advanced level of eventing. Coming up on our next episode, we're going to be interviewing Sally Cousins, who is a local writer to us and a living legend. And we're going to pick her brain about some of the OTTBs that made her career so special and just pick her brain about thoroughbreds in general. As always, we would love to hear from you. So please follow us and feel free to reach out on social media. On Instagram, it's OTTB underscore on underscore tap. Our email is OTTB on tap at Gmail. And you can find us on Facebook and our website at OTTB market and OTTB market.com. And if you like what you heard in this episode, we now have a YouTube channel. Just go over there and search for OTTB on tap to view videos and content related to our podcast episodes. And if you head on over there today, you'll see videos of Emily and Alex competing at the North American Young Riders Championships. So until next time, bye. Bye.